Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I am your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. So, of course, the Tudor period is one of the most intriguing periods of English history with all of its intrigue and religious transformation and larger-than-life monarchs. From the imposing reign of Henry VII to the iconic Elizabeth I, each monarch carved out a unique legacy. However, one that is often overlooked in between the imposing shadows of Henry VIII and the Virgin Queen lies the reign of a young boy king, Edward VI. His reign was short-lived, only six years, but it was actually quite pivotal. His rule marked significant shifts in English religious practices, governance structures, and societal norms. Even as a teenager, he demonstrated a level of religious fervor and political awareness that was remarkable for his age, setting the stage for seismic changes in England. So that is what we are talking about today. Before we get started, though, we are two and a half weeks away from TudorCon, which means that if you want to come on the streaming ticket, you can get your streaming ticket, englandcast.com slash Online. I just yesterday in my email got the cook-along video from Brigitte Webster. It's going to be so much fun. Um, Cassidy Cash of That Shakespeare Life is making some super cool uh, videos trailers and things available just to streaming tickets. She's won some awards for, I think, was it Romeo and Juliet in three minutes? Um, so she's doing some stuff. Michael Ratty is making the King's Legacy musical available just for streaming tickets. And then, of course, we have all of the talks and you'll get recordings of the talks. So if you can't watch them live, you can watch them later. All of that. So you guys, it is going to be a weekend of tutor immersion whether you come in person, which of course it's too late to get your tickets now, so you can't, or even online, I really wanted to make this a weekend where it would be not just another Zoom call. Like everybody's so sick of Zoom calls, right? I hate Zoom calls, and yet we do them. Um, and I didn't want to make it just another Zoom call, so I was trying to think about what I can do to you know build the community and make it really a weekend that is 
a Tudor immersion. And that's what it's going to be. Englandcast.com slash TudorCon online to learn more and get your ticket. All right, let us talk about Edward VI. Edward was born on October 12th, 1537 to Henry VIII and his third wife, Jane Seymour. As Henry's only legitimate male heir, Edward's birth was greeted with celebration. The long-desired son would secure the Tudor dynasty, ensuring the continuation of Henry's line. Of course, Jane Seymour died shortly after childbirth, leaving Edward motherless from his earliest days. The England that he was born into was in the throes of Reformation, a religious and political movement that sought to break away from the Catholic Church's authority. As such, Edward's education was influenced by notable Protestant scholars of the day. Tutors like Richard Cox and John Check imparted to him a solid grounding in languages, science, and humanities, but also distinct Protestant theological perspective. I actually did an episode oh, years ago on the Tudor tutors, the tutors who taught Edward and Elizabeth, too, was part of that early schooling and had the same tutors as Edward for a while, too. So if you want to dig into that, I will add a link in the show notes. Anyway, this religious orientation would come to play a profound role in his reign. In 1547, of course, his father died and the nine-year-old prince was suddenly thrust onto the throne as Edward VI. His age meant that he could not rule independently yet, leading to an establishment of a regency council to govern on his behalf. However, the council's role quickly transformed into a protectorate, with Edward's uncle, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, taking the helm as Lord Protector. Somerset's influence on the young king was substantial. The Protectorate period, marked by Somerset's guidance, saw the initiation of significant reforms, particularly in the realms of religion and governance. Despite his youth, Edward wasn't just a passive observer, though. His education had equipped him with the knowledge and skills to grasp the nuances of statecraft, especially as he grew older. And he often engaged in discussions and decision-making processes related to the kingdom's administration. But Edward's ascension wasn't without challenges. As with any transition of power, especially with a minor on the throne, there were power struggles, political maneuverings, and differing visions for the country's future. The protectorate system, while ostensibly in place to guide and support the young king, was also a battleground for influence and control. As Edward matured, he began to demonstrate a clearer sense of his own beliefs and the direction that he wanted to steer England in. His Protestant upbringing was merging with the responsibilities of a king, leading to a reign that, though brief, would leave an indelible mark on English history. So when Edward ascended to the throne, he was nine, and Henry VIII, in his will, had set out provisions for a regency council. The council was to guide and govern on behalf of his son until Edward reached 18. Henry's intent was clear. The council would comprise of six members, with decisions reached by a majority rule ensuring that no one individual wielded unchecked power. However, the reality of Edward's reign diverged markedly from Henry's design. Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, Edward's uncle, emerged as a dominant figure on the council, and with support from key allies, he managed to elevate himself to the position of Lord Protector, effectively centralizing power and control in his hands. Somerset's leadership was characterized by ambition and a zeal for Protestant reform. He took audacious steps to further the English Reformation, accelerating the break from the Catholic Church. 
This was evident in policies like the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer, the dissolution of the chantries. Under his guidance, Edwards England saw widespread dismantling of Catholic symbols and practices. But Somerset's rule wasn't without contention. His decisions, both religious and economic, often led to societal unrest. Land enclosures led to widespread displacement of peasants, culminating in uprisings like Ket's Rebellion. And although he actually did not support land enclosures, that was actually part of what led to his downfall, he was unable to do anything about it. As Edward grew older, he began to exhibit a more assertive role in governance. And Edward's diary and his correspondences reveal a keen awareness of the political maneuverings around him. By the early 1550s, there was a shift in power dynamics, seeing John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, rising in prominence, eventually replacing Somerset as the leading figure in the protectorate. And of course, Edward Seymour himself would be beheaded in 1552. So let's talk first about religion. Edward's reign stands out as a period of accelerated religious transformation. The Reformation had been initiated under his father, but under Edward's direction, it became decisively Protestant because, you know, Henry VIII was never fully Protestant. He was really a Catholic who just didn't want to have a boss. But under Edward, England became decisively Protestant, moving beyond the mere political dimensions of Henry's break with Rome. The most significant step in this direction was the dissolution of the chantries in 1547. These were religious endowments dedicated to saying prayers for the souls of the dead, deeply rooted in Catholic tradition. Their dissolution not only provided the crown with valuable assets, but signaled a clear theological departure from the concept of purgatory. Perhaps nothing symbolizes his reformation more vividly, though, than the infamous stripping of the altars. This just breaks my heart and I'm not Catholic. Traditional Catholic symbols, relics, images, rood screens, stained glass windows were removed and destroyed from churches all across the realm. We lost so many choir books um, and just pieces of art from that time. The vibrantly decorated medieval churches were whitewashed, rendering them stark and plain. This was not just an aesthetic decision. This reflected the Protestant conviction that worship should be devoid of what they saw as idolatrous distractions. I was raised in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, of course, and the Amish have these very plain churches because, of course, you don't want to have anything distract you from worshiping God directly. And, and that's what happened during Edward's reign. There were two vital pieces of liturgy underscoring this Protestant zeal. The Book of Common Prayer was introduced in 1549 and revised in 1552, and then the 42 Articles of 1553. Both were deeply influenced by the Protestantism of places like Switzerland, continental Protestantism, really. The reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. The Book of Common Prayer, crafted primarily by Thomas Cranmer, standardized a distinctly Protestant form of worship in English emphasizing the primacy of the Bible and removing many, many Catholic elements. It also, of course, changed music forever because this is the period when we start to see that the change, the Protestant music that had to be written for the services, the one note per uh, word, for example, so you don't have long flowing pieces anymore. You just have very basic music that you can hear the words very clearly Thomas Tallis's If Ye Love Me is such an example of this, always held up as like the, the epitome of music under Edward. 
during this time. So look it up on Spotify if you want some time. But there was actually a rule, one note per word, per syllable, I mean, so that everything could be heard very clearly. Anyway, Edward's personal convictions played a role in these changes. Although he was quite young, he displayed an earnest piety and a growing adherence to Reformed theology. His journals and his letters, again, demonstrate not only a deep understanding of Protestant tenets, but also an enthusiasm for their implementation. However, these sweeping reforms were not universally embraced. The speed and intensity of the changes led to unrest in many parts of the country. There was the Prayer Book Rebellion in 1549, originating in Cornwall and Devon. I did a whole episode on that earlier this year, I think, um, maybe late last year. And uh, it was a manifestation of this resistance as traditionalists rebelled against the imposition of the new English language liturgy. There was more to it than that, but that's the simplified version. If you want the full version, go listen to the episode. But by the end of Edward's reign, England was unmistakably set on a Protestant path. While the king's premature death would lead to a temporary Catholic resurgence under his sister, Mary I, the groundwork that Edward laid would prove influential in shaping the religious identity of England for centuries to come. Edward VI's reign was not only characterized by religious upheaval, but also there was notable rebellions that exposed underlying socio-political tensions of the realm. These uprisings, though diverse in their origins and objectives, collectively painted a picture of a nation grappling with change. There was, of course, the prayer book rebellion, like I just mentioned, that was in response to the Protestant Book of Common Prayer. It was not solely a religious revolt, but it did voice concerns over economic hardships as well, particularly land enclosures. The rebels demanded a return to Latin mass and measures to address economic grievances. Then there was also Kett's Rebellion. Almost simultaneously in Norfolk, Robert Kett led another uprising primarily against land enclosures that dispossessed the peasant farmers. While Kett's Rebellion began as a local dispute, it soon drew thousands of supporters. And though there were religious undertones, this was fundamentally about economic injustice. Kett and his followers actually held Norwich for six weeks before they were defeated by an army under the command of John Dudley, the future Duke of Northumberland. If you want to learn more, really get into Cat's Rebellion, C.J. Sampson has a wonderful Matthew Shardlake book. The Matthew Shardlake mysteries are so good. And he has one, I forget exactly what it's called. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But it came out maybe five, six years ago. Uh, and it's based around Cat's Rebellion. Oh, my goodness. It is so, 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 so good. Um, and it really kind of explains how. Kett's Rebellion got started, how it took off, how people actually supported it, and why. So interesting. And so there were these big societal issues, rapid inflation, land enclosures, a sense of political exclusion combined with religious discontent. And that's what fueled popular unrest. The revolts had lasting implications. They highlighted the challenges of governing a kingdom in transition, underscored the importance of tact and compromise in leadership, Lessons that would resonate in the reigns of Edward's successors. Some of the notable shifts in England's economic and social policies during this time include economic innovations. There was the debasement of the coinage, a policy inherited from Henry VIII's reign, which continued until 1551. 
The debased coins had less metal, less precious metal than their face value indicated. This caused significant inflation and economic turmoil. Recognizing this, the government, under the guidance of the Duke of Northumberland in the latter part of Edward's reign, initiated a bold currency reform. They began the great recoinage aimed to restore public trust by pulling debased coins out of circulation and replacing them with new coins of reliable value. And it wasn't actually until the reign of Elizabeth I that we fully see the ending of the debasing of the currency. It took a while to get pulled out of that, but Edward tried to get it started for sure. Land enclosures would continue to be a major issue. Enclosing land for sheep farming was more profitable to get the wool for the wool trade, but all of that common land had been used by peasants to graze their own animals, to grow things. It was common land, and that led to uprisings like Ket's Rebellion. The government responded with some mixed measures on one hand, issuing proclamations against illegal enclosures, but they didn't fully enforce them because of the economic benefits. There was also the Vagabonds Act in 1547. It was an attempt to address the increasing number of homeless and unemployed roaming the countryside, partly as a result of land enclosures, it should be said. The act stated that any able-bodied person without work or a master could be branded and enslaved for two years. The law was so unpopular and unenforceable that it was repealed two years later. Despite the harshness of the Vagabonds law, there were actually some efforts to address poverty. The Act for the Relief of the Poor in 1552 sought to create a rudimentary welfare system where local communities were responsible for their own poor. Again, I did an episode on it's called Being Poor in Tudor England that talked about some of these poor laws and social welfare as well. So if you want to dig into that, that episode's available. So Edward's reign saw policies attempting to balance economic growth with social stability. Some reflected a harsher approach to social issues. There were also genuine attempts to address welfare of the kingdom's most vulnerable people. As Edward grew older and more educated, he began to show an interest in matters of state showing an intellect and precociousness that suggested that he might have become a very effective ruler if he had lived longer. From an early age, he was trained in the art of kingship. He received an education encompassing classical studies, languages, theology. Combined with his inquisitive nature, it meant that by his mid-teens, he was actively engaging with his advisors and participating in council meetings. He actually kept a detailed journal, which is a significant source for historians, providing insights into his perspective on key events and decisions on his reign. Through his journal, it's evident that he wasn't just a silent observer, but often had clear stances, especially on religious matters. There are also instances where he directly intervened in governance, notably as his death approached, he took an active role in trying to determine his own succession to ensure the continuation of his Protestant reforms. I want to talk for a minute about his diary because it is so extraordinary. He may have been prompted to write his diary by one of his tutors. It begins with a description of his childhood until about 1547. And then for the years between 1547 to 49, it's a chronicle of past events that mostly refer to Edward in the third person. Then from March 1550 until November 1552, when it ends, it's more like a diary with entries for individual days. 
He reveals that he and his sister Elizabeth learned of Henry's death from his uncle Edward Seymour at Elizabeth's Enfield residence on the 30th of January, 1547. He mentions that it caused great grief in London, but he doesn't ever go into how he felt about it. He describes the Privy Council's choice of Edward Seymour as the protector and governor of the king's person. And he also talks about how his father's officers broke all of their staffs of office and threw them into Henry's grave at his burial. Here's what he writes learning of the death of his father. After the death of King Henry VIII, his son Edward, Prince of Wales, was come to at Hartford by the Earl of Hartford, Sir Anthony Brown, Master of the Horse, for whom before was made great preparation that he might be created Prince of Wales, and afterward was brought to Enfield, where the death of his father was first showed him, and the same day the death of his father was showed in London, where was great lamentation and weeping, and suddenly he proclaimed king. The next day he was brought to the Tower of London, where he tarried in the space of three weeks, and in the mean season the council sat for the performance of the performance of the will. So you see, he is talking about himself in the third person. And it's fascinating. You can actually look at it. I think it's at the British Library, and they have a a lot of information about it there if you want to dig deeper. The journal was not just about national affairs. Edward also wrote about his daily life, his studies, his interaction with foreign ambassadors, health challenges he faced. One poignant entry from April of 1552 notes that he recovered from a severe bout of measles and smallpox, and that would eventually lead to his early death. Through the journal, you can actually trace the development of Edward from a boy king to a young man with strong convictions, revealing a depth of character and intellect that challenges the perceptions of him as merely a placeholder between the reigns of his more famous relatives. His reign was brief, but it was marked by profound changes, especially, like I said, in the religious landscape of England. The intense Protestant reforms during his rule would serve as the foundation for the Anglican Church, and while later monarchs would temper these reforms, the groundwork had been laid. Edward's reign also saw the expansion of English literature and educational reforms, an extension of Renaissance ideals that had started during his father's reign. Yet for all of his influence, his time on the throne was cut tragically short. In early 1553, he fell seriously ill, possibly with tuberculosis. Recognizing the gravity of his condition and the potential religious upheaval that could ensue if the staunchly Catholic Mary, his eldest half-sister, ascended the throne, he displayed a remarkable political acumen. He attempted to alter the succession to exclude both of his half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, in favor of Lady Jane Grey, his cousin, and a devout Protestant. This device for the succession was likely influenced by John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, because he had just married his son to Jane Grey, but the swift movement showcased Edward's intense commitment to ensuring a Protestant future for England. He died on July 6, 1553, at the age of 15. His death plunged England into a brief but intense political crisis, Lady Jane Grey was declared queen, but ruled for just nine days before Mary I, with popular support, claimed her rightful place on the throne, marking the beginning of the Catholic resurgence. Edward's direct interventions and the decisions made during his reign set the stage for decades of religious conflict in England, with the seesawing between Protestantism and Catholicism continuing through Mary's reign and settling at least temporarily under Elizabeth I. 
Of course, then it would come back with the English Civil War later. But that's a different story. The young king's commitment to religious reform, education, and centralized government all hint at what might have been a transformative reign had he lived into maturity. Today, while he's often overshadowed by the larger-than-life reigns of his father and his half-sister, his impact on religious, cultural, and political landscapes is undeniable. In his short life, he showcased a blend of zeal, intelligence, and determination that promised a remarkable reign had fate allowed him more time. For now, we're going to stop it. Hop into the Tudor Learning Circle at tutorlearningcircle.com to discuss Edward and all things Tudor. It's a social network just for Tudor nerds. Remember to check out the TudorCon streaming tickets at englandcast.com slash TudorCon online. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your time listening. And uh, yeah, thank you. And I will be back again soon. <laughs> Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, ascend who may be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote burd in Bauerbrieg, that soul is samlies on sea. Nens full maiden of me, fair and fray to fond.